So happy Easter. I'm really glad that you're here. I'm excited for Easter. And, uh, and you know, I was, got really excited for, for Easter last night when I sat at uh, our dinner table with my two sons. Uh, one is four, the other is two. And I just thought it would be a great time to make sure that my children know what Easter is about. And so we sat there and we're, we're eating. And, and uh, so I was like, all right, this is a moment. They're, you know, they're not strangling each other. Everyone is calm. We've got about a 10-second window. Let me just remind them of what Easter is about. So, uh, you know, I take it as my duty, and my wife does as well, to help just teach our kids the, the things that matter and things that are important. And, and they're often very, very responsive to those things. And in this moment, there looked to be a window of responsiveness. And so as we sat there, I sat across from Julian. Adrian is over here uh, eating a Lego. And so I looked at Julian and said, Julian, is Easter tomorrow? I said, yeah. It's like, remember what Easter is about? Yeah. What's it about? The eggs. It's like, oh, yes, the eggs. Yes, yes, the eggs. Um, it's like, well, he just saw me sort through 3,000 of them in the living room. So it's like, well, that makes sense. It is about the eggs. Uh, it's like, well, what else is it about, Julian? Our friends. It's being with our friends and family. So yes, yes, Julian, also that. What, what else? And just kind of kept, kept going and kept going and trying to get to kind of the heart and core of what Easter is about. Um, and, and it took a little bit of time. Uh, and so as we come to Easter, we, we rejoice in Easter. We're excited about Easter because it is all those things. It is a time for celebration. It is a time for you get this sense of new life because the sun finally comes out. The flowers begin to bloom. It's this, this time of joy. Kids are happy. They're getting candy, so they're excited, right? It, it's this, this time of hope. It's this time of refreshment. It's this time of happiness. It's kind of this turn of season. It's about a lot. Easter is about a lot of things. But what we want to do is we also we want to drill down and get to kind of the core of, of what Easter is about. And as we drill down and get to the core of what Easter is about, which is what I want us to do today, is we're going to see that Easter, Easter is about hope. We drill down to the core of Easter, Easter is about hope. Now, it's not just about hope in a generic way, hoping that you know, things will work out, hoping that the Celtics can pull it off today, like, well, let's pray for that later, right? But it, at its core, right, it, it's, about, it's about hope, and it's about a hope that, that's tied to the person and, and work of, of Jesus. It's about a hope that's tied to something that, that a man did 2,000 years ago. So what I want us to get today is that, that Easter is about the hope of Jesus. And I want us to get to that by, by looking at the story and reality of what God has done through ancient history so that we can then have a better sense for what God has done in recent history through Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to, to, to get this idea of hope we're going we're gonna to look at it actually an Old Testament narrative where God has delivered his people. And we're going to see this pattern, this display, this, this, this great act of deliverance and hope that really sets the table for us to understand the greater act of deliverance and hope that God offers to us in Jesus. Okay, so we're going to look at it, an ancient story in order to understand a slightly less ancient story to see the hope and the deliverance that Jesus Christ gives. So we're going to look at Exodus chapter 12. Now, how many of you are familiar with the Exodus? You at least heard that phrase before. Okay. How many of you have seen any of the seven Exodus movies? There's one every three years. Okay. So you, some of you have seen it. Okay. So if you haven't, that's okay. So we're going to, I'm going to fill it in and we're going to read nine verses and, and then you're going, to get, you're going to be fine. It'll save you three hours, right, from, from watching those movies. Okay. 
So the Exodus is God's people are, uh, the, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, they're in, they, they, be, they become enslaved by Egypt, by the, the world power at this time. They become enslaved. And so they're, they're taken out of their land. They're, they're, they're not allowed to go back to where they need to be so that they can worship God and they can be with God and they can be a blessing to the nations. They're actually enslaved under Pharaoh. And, and Pharaoh essentially wants them to treat, uh, treat him as their God. And so God does miracles, does signs and wonders. He raises up a person named Moses to, to deliver and set his people free, but Pharaoh has none of it. And then finally, God decisively acts to deliver his people and to set them free from their captivity and oppression. Pharaoh had, had instituted a systematic slavery, systematic death, just a sheer evil and brutality. And after a long period of waiting and crying out and pleading and longing for hope, God sets his people free. And that's the passage that we're going to read today, these nine verses, where God sets his people free. And that's the exodus, that's the going out. So God's people are going to go out of bondage, and they're going to begin to walk into freedom and life and deliverance. So let's look at Exodus 12, 33 through 42. So God has just worked these massive signs and wonders. And so the people of Egypt are now like, man, we were keeping you in slavery. Now we want you to get out. Just get out. Like we, we're seeing how God is strong. Just, just get out. And Israel is going to go free because of God's deliverance. Look at verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people, the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So God is working. God is moving. We've got to get these people out. We, we, can't, we can't oppress them anymore. 34. So the people took the dough before it was leavened and their, netting bo- and their kneading bowls and bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. So are doing this ritual to, to remember what God is doing, following his commands, and, but all of a sudden they're being told to get out. So they're like, all right, let's just take what we got. We're getting out. We're going free. Today's the day we're being set free. Let's go. No time to pack. So they move. 35. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So God is not only delivering the people, but the people before they're going out, they're coming to the Egyptians saying, yo, can I get that earring? Can I get that ring? Can I get that necklace? And God has given them so much favor that the Egyptians are like, sure. <laughs> You've never seen that happen before, right? And so what God is doing is he's actually sending his people out with a blessing. Think about this. They have been enslaved and systematically uh, murdered and brutalized for 430 years. And so God is saying, I'm not only going to set you free, but I'm going to send you with a little something, something you're going to be able to rebuild your life. And they're later going to use this, these items to help honor God, right? So, so God is sending them out with, with blessing. So maybe, you know, maybe try that this week. Just, just see, see something nice and just ask somebody for it. See if God is going to send you out with a blessing. There'll be a way to not apply this well. 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. We include everybody in this, maybe, maybe about 2 million people. 38. And a mixed multitude went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. 38 is important because we see that it's not just the Hebrew people. It's not just the Israelites that are going free under this oppressive rule and, and walking into new life. It's a mixed multitude. That means there's people from Egypt as well who are seeing, wow, I didn't know who this God was, but I've seen what he's been doing, these miracles, these wonders. I want to be free too. I'm going with you guys. And they go. 39, and they baked unleavened cakes in the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Then we get these last verses, kind of a summary. 
the time that the people of Israel had lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. It's recapping how long that they waited, and it's instituting this idea that this is such a significant act of deliverance, such a, a, a significant moment of freedom and hope and life, that this is to be remembered. That this is to be remembered. So what, what in the world does this have to do with Easter? Well, everything. We talked about the essence of Easter is this hope in Jesus. And think of the Hebrew people, 430 years of waiting, hoping for what? Deliverance. 430 years of waiting to be set free, deliverance from oppression, generations of people crying out to God. They were starved for hope. And on this day, God set them free. This is the central thing I want us to grab, with, understand with our minds and grab with our hearts as we talk about kind of the implications of this text on a, on a larger scale. Is I want us to grasp this, that, that God gives us deliverance and victory in Jesus just as he gives deliverance and victory for his people from the rule of oppression. God gives us deliverance and victory in Jesus. Israel was desperate for deliverance. 430 years. I want you to think about this. We, we can barely wait two days to get something from Amazon, right? Now they got the two-hour thing. So now, we can, now two days is going to be gone. We're going to need the five-minute delivery, right? We can hardly wait. Can you imagine 400 years of longing for deliverance and hope? Or think about the longings in your life, the things that you have longed for for decades or for years or even for months that begin to just wear you down. I think about like 430 years longing for deliverance. And every single day, the Hebrew people have reminders that they need deliverance. So if we were to go back and look over the story, they're put under a systematic institution of slavery and oppression. And so every single day when they move, they, their, their chains jingle, reminding them that they need to be delivered. Every time they maybe have a quiet moment when they're not working and, and being uh, uh, pushed brutally to achieve things for Pharaoh, they, they have a quiet moment and they think in their mind and they have a flashback of maybe something brutal that they've seen or, or, or a scar or a wound that they have. They have constant reminders of their need for deliverance. They understand that their deliverance is either coming from an act of God or not at all. They can't overthrow a world power. So God has to act, and God does act. He acts through signs and wonders and miraculous things that he does in the narrative to set them free. But they are living constantly, up until this moment of freedom, they're living with constant reminders that they need to be delivered. Now, this helps us, in a way, because we too have constant signs and reminders in our life that we also need to be delivered. Now, thankfully, we don't have a great enemy named Pharaoh who is, who is seeking to oppress us and, and, and hold us under. We, we, we don't have that. Yet you and I, we, we really do, if we're going to be honest, we really do need a deliverance 
just as much as Israel needed a deliverance. Now, Israel needed a physical deliverance that they were able to feel, to see, and touch the scars of. You and I, we're, we're in a place that actually makes it a little bit more difficult because we're not given these reminders that we need a physical deliverance, but internally, we have things that remind us that we need a spiritual or internal deliverance just as much as they needed a physical one. Now, this puts us at a deficit because uh, physical chains jingle, right? But internal chains, they don't. They make a faint sound, but do you know what covers that faint sound of our internal need? Just the day-to-day stuff of life. And so if you listen closely and you trace all your, your, your baggage, your wounds, your, your questions, the things that you struggle with, you're actually going to find something that pieces together as a puzzle that paints the picture that you and I need deliverance. Let me, let me trace a few of these, these, these things out that, that if you listen to them, they will show you that you need deliverance. If you pay attention to your fears, your doubts, your wounds, your past, your guilt, your conscience, your insecurities, you will find you need deliverance too. You'll hear those chains saying, you need this. Let me show you one, one, relationships. Isn't it funny that every single relationship that you have ever been in has problems? Isn't that funny? Even your best ones have problems. Now, wouldn't you think it was strange if you, get to, uh, if you get to 30 years, you get to 60 years, you get to 70 years, you get to 80 years, you get to 90 years, and you just do an inventory on every relationship, and you chart it out, you, maybe you put it in, in Excel or Google, Google Sheets or something, because you're very smart, and you could tell, I don't know what I'm talking about now, right? So you put it in something, you trace it out, and you go, oh, this relationship, this person, this is great. Actually, we, well, we did have some problems, but it was still good. This one was bad, we had some problems. You trace every single relationship that you've ever been in, there's problems in every one. Now, shouldn't that be like a a, a little light bulb that goes off that says, wow, there's something about that person? And then after that, another light bulb, well, actually, let me me think of the common denominator in all these relationships in my life. (laughs) There's something about me. Now, imagine there's these incredible, uh, uh, use your imagination, incredible um, uh, aliens that are really smart, and they come down to earth, and they study, they study everything about humanity in the present and in the past. And they have all this data, billions and billions and billions and billions of people and billions and billions and billions of relationships. And so they trace all of those out and they trace them and they realize this race, these creatures, every single thing that they do with another person has a problem. Well, what are they going to deduce? What are they going to take away logically? That there is something with them that is not right. Right? But we can kind of cover over that sound of that need for deliverance through just daily life, through just thinking that it's normal, right? Think even about guilt. Think about how there's a way in which you can be removed from something that you've done years and yet still have this trace of guilt that seems to hover over you. That even as you do things like, well, I forgive myself, that you can still have that feeling weigh over you or this sense of, of unworthiness that hangs over your head. Think about uh, fulfillment. I ran into a, to a friend who uh, has a great job, and she switched jobs. And so she, we ran in, we just were walking because the sun was finally out, and I ran into her, and, and she says, I, I need to come back to church. I'm having an existential crisis. I said, why are you having a crisis? Because I had to switch my job. 
And I'm thinking in my head, you are so educated. You are so smart. Your family is great. You're awesome. You switch this job for another awesome job, and yet even you are not fulfilled. What, what does this tell us? If you were to put her stuff on paper, she's got what, you know, 100 out of 100 people would go for. They bought a house in Somerville. Isn't that incredible? They bought a house in Somerville. They got paper, right? So you got all this, but you're having an existential crisis. It makes me think, if you're having a crisis, what is, what is happening with me? And then I think, okay, I, I, see, I see how the hope of Jesus has changed me because you got it all. So think of our fulfillment and how that actually is a chain that jingles showing that, ah, oh, we, we need a deliverance. We can have everything and still not be fulfilled. Think about our insecurity. Think about how if you're like me, you're always trying to measure up to people that you may not even like in order to prove that you're something that deep down you know you're not. And just think of how as you try to achieve more and more, you just end up increasing your level of insecurity. Because the more you achieve, the more you feel like, well, this actually really isn't who I am. So now if they really know the distance between who I am and what I've achieved, the gap of my insecurity increases. And so now you just feel more and more of a fraud. You ever felt that? You get into that program, you get that promotion, now you're like, wow, now if they really find out who I really am, this is, this is even worse than when I was working customer service, right? And you just this sense of, I have to prove myself. These are the chains, faint sounds of our internal need for deliverance. Think of even our distraction. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal, he said, the fundamental problem of humanity is that we cannot sit alone with ourselves for more than two minutes. And what he's getting at is that we have so much inner turmoil and so many wounds, not just things that we've done, but things that have been done to us. We have so much wounds and baggage that often for us to just sit without a book, without a phone, without a screen, without some means of entertainment, if we just sit, we, can't almost, we can almost not do it because what will, start, what will start to happen is internally we'll start to deal with who we really are. And that's a little bit overwhelming. And if you think about all of those needs, all of those realities, they come together as puzzle pieces to paint the picture that just like Israel needed deliverance, we too need deliverance. They needed a physical one. We need a spiritual one. They needed an outward one. We need an internal one. And so if you put all those puzzle pieces together, they paint the picture, we need deliverance. And they also paint the picture of, of a root cause. You take all those symptoms, relationships, insecurity, guilt, fulfillment, even our distraction, because we don't want to be with ourselves. It, the, the root causes is really this idea of sin. This idea that we have a, a separation from God, and that separation also leads to brokenness in these secondary areas of our lives. So it's no wonder that our relationships don't go the way we want them to, even when we try our hardest. It's a wonder that, that we feel insecure, even as we are doing our best. It's, it's no wonder that as we try to improve ourselves in certain areas of our lives, we continue to struggle or even take steps backwards, no matter how genuine we are in trying to get better at something. It's because there's a root cause within us that needs dealing with. And God, in His grace, as a remedy. God in his grace doesn't rub our nose in the dirt, but brings us healing, but brings us restoration, but brings us redemption, but brings us deliverance. And this is the first big idea that I, I really want us to see is that just as God triumphs over Pharaoh to deliver his people, 
He triumphs over the evil of Pharaoh to set his people free so that they can be delivered, so that they can walk in freedom. Just as God triumphs over Pharaoh to deliver his people, God triumphs through Jesus to deliver us from our sin and all of its effects. That just as God does this wonderful sign, this miraculous sign of judging Pharaoh's evil and delivering his people, um, they walk out with gold, right? They, they walk out with this stuff. The, the, the phrase, verse 36, is plundering. This is kind of deliverance language. This is battle language that, that the victory's been won. And, and guess what? You guys are coming with the spoils. This is the idea of deliverance that they've been set free. Just as God has been victorious over that oppression and that evil, God is victorious over our sin so that we can walk in a new life, in a new way, in a new type of freedom. That's what Jesus has done. He's triumphed in an even greater way than than the Exodus. And this deliverance, this being set free, this, this going out, this walking in a new way, it's the result of this powerful act of victory by God. Jesus actually, he came to deliver us from sin and its shame. That's what he came for. So that those chains could be broken and we could live in a new way. We could walk in a new way just as Israel was getting ready to walk to a new land and live in a new manner. We could do the same. Now, here's, here's, here's the thing about sin. We have to understand this component. And I know that the phrase has baggage or it may mean things or it may not mean anything, right? But I want you to just think about this. Sin is, is not simply the, the bad that you've done or the good that you forgot. Right? Sin, is, sin is really, in, it's a lot of things, but it, at, its, at its essence is this idea that you live as if you are the most important person in the world. That's what sin is. Sin is you living as if you're God and God's not. Sin is living as if you are the star director and the authority over all things in your life pertaining to you and to others, and, and you live that way. Right? And if we understand sin as that, and, and also as the, the good and the bad, but it, at its core, it's even just that. If we understand sin that way, then we understand that we all have a plaque hanging in our, in our homes, and that plaque says that, that we have PhDs in sin. You're welcome. Put that on the CV for the next job. Just put it at the bottom. <laughs> wow, this person's PhD in sin? <laughs> well, let's get to the next one. Right? So, but, but we are very skilled in this because it's our default. It's, it's our default. It's part of the brokenness of this world. It's our default. God wants to bring healing to that. God wants to redeem that. God wants to forgive that. God wants to mend that. That's why he sends Jesus to come and to give us victory over it. But well, it's all our default. Now, because it's our default, we can begin to kind of write it off and say, well, it's our default. Everybody does it. Everybody's selfish, so it's not a big deal. But, but think about this. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Think, think about this. If you have a friend who, and their default is every fifth sentence, they insult you. That's just kind of what they do. And it's kind of one of the, it's not like a, a vulgar in, insult, but it's just kind of a passive aggressive kind of dig. And then they go back to normal, but that's just kind of what they do, right? You can be friends with them for, for many, many years, but you're never going to say, well, that's their default. Isn't that cute? It's every time it happens, you're like, oh man, we got to fix you, right? We're going to say there's something here that's not right. And, and as we understand that our default is ourselves at the center, God off the map somewhere, or, or God at the bottom, right? us at the center, our neighbors, not that, right? But when we understand that, we, we see it's our default, but that doesn't excuse it. That just means that we're all in the same boat with the same need, and God delivers it through the work of Jesus. Just as God will not let bondage be the last word for Israel, but will work to deliver them, God through Jesus, will not let our default, our sin, our brokenness, he will not let that be the last word over our lives. He does not want that to be the last word over you. He will not, he will not let that be the last word over his creation, which is why he sends his son to bring redemption. 
This is what Jesus comes to do. He comes to give us victory over sin. He comes as the sinless one to atone for sin so that the effects of sin can be put to death. So the effects of sin can be removed, can be triumphed over so that the world and us, we can walk, we can go out in victory just as Israel is about to walk out with spoils and victory into their land and live in freedom for the first time in 430 years. That is what God is doing through Jesus Christ. And God does it decisively for us. If you think about the story of the Exodus, the people of Israel don't do anything. They disobey, they complain, they pray. There's a couple times in the narrative where they obey just as God says, and it's actually, to the reader, it pops out it's like, wow, this is amazing, they did it. There was no complaining, they just did what they were, God said to do, it's incredible. But there's no sense that, that God's people are delivered because of something that they did. They don't load up and try to revolt against Pharaoh, they don't do, any, they don't do anything, they just receive the deliverance that God gives. And in the same way, what God does to forgive our sins, to release us from the power of sin in all of those different ways, is God gives us the victory through what Jesus has done, and all we do is keep our hands open to receive it. This is that the essence of Christianity, that it's a, a mercy and a forgiveness and a deliverance and a victory and a freedom that's received by grace. And that means that you didn't do anything. That means that you weren't better than that person. It means God had mercy. Now, as somebody who doesn't like to do things, this is great. As somebody who, who understands that there's a lot of things that even as I want to do them, I'm not able to follow through. I'm not good enough to, to get it done. This is phenomenal. If you've, if you've come to the end of yourself in any way, shape, or form, this is great news to you. Now, if you still hold a, a little bit of sense of I can do it or I'm this or I'm that, then, then this won't really get your heart going. But if you've come to realize it like, yeah, actually, yeah, I, I mess a lot of things up in my life. I, I understand I understand this. I, I've seen that PhD of sin on my wall, and I also have an MA in sin, and I also have a BA in this, and I got this from, right? When you start to understand that's who I am, not in my totality, but that's part of my nature, then this idea of grace, a deliverance, a forgiveness, a freedom that you have to do nothing for, but that Jesus does all of for you, it begins to set your heart aflame. Because you realize the gap between what God gives you and what you've really earned. It changes everything. You see, but Jesus only isn't going to, to do that. Jesus is not just going to forgive us. Jesus is actually going to lead us into life. He leads us into life with God. He triumphs over death through his resurrection. He's going to lead us out of sin into freedom and grace, but he also triumphs over death in order to lead us into life. And all this happens from this one sign and wonder. God does signs and wonders to set Israel free, but there's a greater sign and wonder that those things even point to. They point to the cross of Jesus. Now, the, the cross of Jesus is, is something that is a little bit difficult for us to really understand because we live in 2017 and not first century Rome. If we lived in first century Rome and we heard crucifixion and we heard the cross, we would all be on the same page in an instant. We would all understand what that meant. We would all feel something rise in the pit of our stomach. We would all twist our face in a certain way. We, we would all immediately grasp what a cross would mean. 
But for us, we have to fill it in a little bit because it's not, it's not our context. We turn the cross kind of into something that we kind of gloss over its edges a little bit because it's not part of our cultural moment, thankfully. But to understand the depths of God's love, we, we have to understand the cross. We have to understand what God did, how he put action to his love, what his love led him to do for us, that Jesus was, was crucified. Jesus died, and crucifixion is not just a, a death by, by any means or by any ordinary measure, but crucifixion is, is, a, is a way of death designed for the most vile. It's a way of death engineered by uh, Rome in order to uh, induce the most suffering. It's a way of death that people would endure in such a way that everybody watching would say that person is less than human. It's a way of death that Rome set up in order to send a message to everyone who would see it and say, I'm not going to do what that person did because I don't want to endure that type of death. They would put the cross at eye level so that people could come and watch and the person dying would be humiliated. It was a way of sending a message that this person is the lowest of low, scum of the earth. And yet Jesus was willing to go and endure that type of death. Why? Why would he do that? His disciples didn't understand it. They were confused. They understood after the fact, but they, they, it made no sense to them. Why would he endure such a death that looked like such a defeat, that looked like absolute hell? Well, there's something happening at the cross. Something happening that actually links us to the story of the Exodus. There's a deliverance happening through Jesus' death. That in Jesus' death, he is taking, in a spiritual way, he is taking sin upon himself. Yes, he is being killed by an unjust government, but in this, there's a spiritual transaction happening that he is taking our sin, he is taking the sin of the world, all of its effects, all of our shame, all of our guilt. He is carrying it and absorbing it in and of himself so that it would never be put upon us. That's what's happening at the cross. So that anyone who would say, Jesus, I can't do it, I trust in you, they would be granted deliverance, forgiveness, and mercy. They would be set free from sin and able to walk in new life, just as Israel is delivered and is about to walk in freedom. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. That's why the cross is everything in Christianity. That's why it's the symbol. Now, if you were to wear that as a symbol in the first century, people would see you and laugh, but they would say, no, you don't know what Jesus has done and what he can do. But it looked foolish because it doesn't make sense to us in our common understanding. But that is what Jesus has done. That is the victory and deliverance that God gives to us through Jesus Christ. And then Jesus not only dies, but he raises, he resurrects, which again, his disciples did not expect. They did not understand. He appears to Mary, Joanna, Mary Magdalene, and they're like, whoa, and then they go and tell all the other disciples, and the disciples are like, it's idle talk. Like, you guys just get some coffee. You haven't had your coffee yet. You don't know what's going on. It just, they didn't expect it. But he had resurrected, and what he's doing in his resurrection is showing that the atonement that was made was effective. 
See, death is an invasion on God's creation. Just as Israel should not be oppressed, no one should be enslaved, death is actually an invasion on God's good world. It's an, it's an effect of sin. And so God is showing through Jesus, not only does he give mercy for our sin, not only does he forgive, but he's actually going to remove the effects of sin one day from the world. The resurrection of Jesus is the appetizer for the full course meal that is going to come. That is what God is doing through Jesus. So he delivers us from sin and shame that we could walk in freedom. He triumphs over death so that we could walk in life. This is what Christ has done. This is what we celebrate. Now, here's the thing about this. You only celebrate things that you are excited about or things that you know you need. And so we have an understanding inwardly of our sense of sin, but sometimes we downplay that because we feel good about ourselves or we look at other people and we say, I'm better than them, and we do that stuff, and I do it too, so I know you do, so, so no judgment. We, we all do that, right? And so we, we downplay that, and I understand that. We need God to kind of humble us and, and give us a real clear view of ourselves. But, but the thing that sometimes we don't understand is when we hear Jesus triumph over death, right, we may have lost loved ones, and so that idea appeals to us. But for some of us, that, that, that doesn't mean anything. Jesus triumphs over death. Fantastic, right? That, that doesn't hold a weight. But it can hold a weight when you understand this, that one of the biggest fears in your life is the fear of death. One of the biggest fears in our culture is the fear of death. Now, it may not be a conscious thing, but it's there under the surface. And here's how we know this culturally. Just look at a commercial or look at a magazine stand next time you're in Stop and Shop or if you like, uh, if you like uh, cheaper prices, Market Basket. Just look at the, just look at the stand. What, what do you see on the magazine covers? What are they selling? Right, you see stuff. How to have six-pack abs while eating whatever you want. Right, you're just like, well, those things don't go to that, right? This person, what they did, right? 10 steps to become rich in four days, right? How to have a productive work week in six minutes, right? There's just all these, all these things where we're just, we're trying to get this type of thing of power. We're trying, it's something about beauty. It's something about efficiency. It's something about fame. It's something about attention. It's something about reputation. Do you know what all of those things have in common? Do you know what's behind all of those things? An obsession with reputation, an obsession with our looks, an obsession with youth, an obsession with the body, an obsession with appearance, an obsession with success. Do you know what's behind every single one of those things? A fear of dying. A fear of death. I want you to think about this. We all, because we are human, we will all die at one point. I don't mean to be morbid. I mean to make light of that. We will all die at one point. And yet, think about this. We spend less time thinking about death than we do about vacations. Wouldn't it make more sense if we all understand that one day I will not be doing this, right? And you're like, please never do that again. Right? <laughs> but one day... I will not be able to live. I will, my heart will not be breathing. Now, we'll, we'll live on. We're, we're creatures that will live on. You can talk to me about that later. But one day, I will not live like this. So if I know that, would I not spend all of my life or at least a decent portion of time about it thinking, what do I want to do with the time that I have? Would that not make sense? If we are logical, smart people, think about what you do. You do this. If you get into a store and you find out, hey, this store is about to close in five minutes, but everything is 75% off, you're going to take a second to strategize. Okay. I need new socks. The socks are there. The shoes are here. They have the spandex that I want, right? You're going to strategize, and you're going to say, I got this much time. Let's get it done. But we spend more time thinking about our vacations than we do thinking about the reality that we have X amount of time, and every single day we have one less day than we had before. Think of how smart we are as humans, and then when you match that with the reality that we hardly ever talk about death, it makes no sense at all unless we're all in on something where we're trying to downplay this reality. 
because it's the one thing that is undefeated against all humanity, is death. It's the one thing in all our ingenuity we are not able to stop. It's the one thing in all of our advances to slow it down or to, to, to keep the wrinkles from going away. It's, all, it's the one thing that we have not been able to conquer, and so we just kind of try to forget about it. Because honestly, who wants to think about that all the time? Because it gets to a heart reality. You see, you see this in music. We know Bob Dylan has a song. You know what song I'm talking about? Bob Dylan fans? Nope. Okay. You guys don't listen to music. Wow. Okay. That worked well. Um, the Bob Dylan song, uh, Forever Young. Jay-Z, Young Forever, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. He says, I'm going to live I'm gonna live on through my... He says, when you play... Jay-Z says, the, the sage uh, poet and cultural critic, Jay-Z, he says that when you play my music to your children, I will live for a million years. My reputation will live on. That's how he's dealing with the fear of death, through reputation. This is why we care about what people think about us, not just in the moment, but we have this sense of hope. I hope I leave a mark. I hope I'm remembered. It's why we want to look young. It's why we want to be fit. That's why we have an obsession with youth in our culture. We, we look at this, I, I mean, watching Madonna perform at two Super Bowls ago. What are you wearing? You're, you're my, you could be my grandma. What are you wearing? You're doing, you just want to be young. And it's this fear of death that's behind all of this behind our insecurity, behind our reputation, behind all of these things. But enter Jesus. He is the one who will actually deliver us from death. He dies for our sins so that death can be dead. He dies so that he can raise again. And in his death, he defeats death. In his death, he TKOs death. In his death, he buries death. In his death, he wins over death. Why? Because he pays for sin and the effect of sin is death. And so he defeats that too so that one day we will live free from death. And not on a cloud, but God is going to renew the earth, is the story of Scripture. And Jesus is the first fruits of that. So Hebrews 2 says this. If you flip one more. Yep, thanks, man. It says, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. This is what's behind our, our cultural obsessions. Think about this. The willingness of Jesus to submit himself to the cross, to submit himself to death, to submit himself to the grave so that he could restore us to God and set us free and to lead us out in a new victory, just as Israel is going to walk out of oppression into a new life and new land. This is what God is doing. So, so what do we do? What do we do? We, we, we walk in the victory. We, we live differently. Because we trust in the victory Jesus has won. Would you think about the Israelites? Think, of, think about the, they've been set free, and it's not just Israel that's coming free, but it's some of Egypt, and they're, and they're walking. Now, now they have a decision. The victory has been seen, it's been, it's been displayed, and they have a decision. They can just stand there and say, well, okay. Or they can say, I'm out, and walk. And walk in step with the victory that has just been won. Walk in step with the deliverance that has just been delivered. They can walk, or they can stay. But they have to make a choice, and they go on the journey. They trust in the act of deliverance and they walk on the journey. So that's what God is, God is calling us to. You hear the resurrection, you say, that's not possible. People don't raise from the dead. They don't. I understand, right? There's a lot of history that we can look at. There's a lot of great books we can look at. And there's things that you can do to think about this and examine that. Maybe that's how you begin to walk on the journey. But we, we get to walk in this deliverance that Jesus has won 
for us. And I think this image of a journey helps us because if we trace what Israel does after this, they walk in the, in the deliverance and in the victory of what God has won and, and done in setting them free. But as they walk, they wander. As they walk, they, they begin to say, hey, it'd actually be better if we were enslaved. They had great food in Egypt. Let's go back. These are, these are the things that they say. And so they're being set free, and yet they say, I want the chains again. Do we not do the same thing? We say, that relationship was horrible. I'm free from it. Actually, I'm going to go back. Right? We, we do the same thing. We do the same thing with the freedom that God has given us in Jesus. We're set free from guilt and shame, and we have forgiveness and mercy. But how much do we live as if we're condemned by God? When God, through Jesus, has given the sign and wonder and the display and declaration, you're loved. You're forgiven. Grace is upon you. Death cannot hold you. You're mine. And yet we walk it back and, 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 and we live like our sin, like our failure, like our shame, like our guilt is the banner over our lives when Jesus has delivered the victory. And so what we do is we get to walk in the victory that Jesus has given. He's defeated death. He's paid for our sin. He's removed our shame. He's conquered our guilt. He's given us a new identity, forgiven, beloved, child of God. And he says, live in light of what I've done. Live as a testament to my power and my grace and my love. This is what God invites us to. Just as he triumphs over the oppression of Pharaoh to set his people free in Christ, God gives us deliverance and victory over sin, shame, and death. Don't miss that. I want us to take a moment now to uh, just pray and reflect silently. You can just do it right in your seat. Just, just take a moment um, to, to just reflect silently, pray silently. I want to encourage you, um, if, if you're here and you say, I'm, I'm not sure what I believe. I'm not, I'm not sure uh, what I think about this, or I know I don't believe this. We're glad that you're here. Just maybe take a moment even uh, and just say, God, if this is real, if you, if you are there, just, just ask him to, to make that clear to you, to, to show you in some way, and just reflect on all that Jesus has done for us. Just take a moment to pray silently, then I'll lead us in prayer aloud. God, you know the state of our hearts. Uh, you know where each one of us uh, is in, in relation to you. Uh, you know it down to the degree, and so we, we ask that you would... Uh, you will give us humility to, to, to see, uh, to see where we, we need your deliverance, to, to really be clear uh, about, about uh, our, our internal realities. Lord, we know that you want to meet us with the grace and the forgiveness uh, of Jesus. And so we ask that you would give us uh, the humility to, to see what Christ has done, to, but, and then to see our need and to see how you lavishly offer uh, this grace and mercy. Uh, help us to, to, to trust in Jesus' work for us. Help us to, to walk the, the journey of, uh, of living in light of what he's done. Help us to not uh, rest in our own goodness or even to, 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 uh, to think that all we are is marked by our failures, but, but help us to live in light of your grace. Uh, free us from uh, the fear of death. Free us from obsession with reputation, identity, and other things. Uh, help us to, to live under the hope of the resurrection. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.